Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the word. Thank you for your people. Thank you, Lord, for the, the willingness to serve your people. Lord, I thank you for Brother Kinsey and his setting up of this uh, impromptu camera situation for those who are at home. Lord, we lift up this time to you and we ask that you glorify yourself, encourage your people. Help us to stand firm with minds that are set on things above. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I have one question already, and then we'll see what happens from there. Okay, here's the question. Since we believe that to be with the Lord Jesus in person is far better than anything we have here on earth. Y'all get that right? It's better to be with the Lord here. When a brother or sister becomes ill or sick, why do we generally pray for their recovery? Why don't we instead pray that they swiftly and painlessly be brought home? as a doctrinal statement. So, first, I would say that one of the reasons why believers do this is because it's commanded and practiced in the New Testament. So, James 5 is a probably the most explicit example of this. James 5, 13 through 16. Would somebody... Oh, and Microphone runner, Ethan, thank you for your help. Okay, with somebody with the microphone, read nice and loud James 5 13 through 16.
and then the last verse, therefore. So we see in James literally a, a command, if anyone is sick, what are they to do according to the text? Call the elders, right? So there's an assumption that in a church there will be elders, so there's that, and there's an assumption that believers will get sick, and when that happens, they are told Call the elders and let them pray over him. Now, that prayer, we could say maybe the thing that the elders were praying is for them to swiftly go and be with the Lord. But we're told, let him pray, anointing with oil, that with faith prayed to the Lord, the Lord will raise him out of his sickbed, even have the word healed there. And just if there's any confusion, the, the language of if they have committed any sins, because we know in 1 Corinthians 15 that some people who were taking, uh, well, not, sorry, 15, 11, that some people who were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some of them had become sick because of that. So there is a reality that there could be sickness that is uh, unconfessed, unrepented of, that is leading to this sickness. And so one of the things that uh, as an elder a pastor that uh, I've been trained to do biblically is when someone does call for me to pray for them, anointing with oil, if they're sick, is to ask the question, do you have any sins that you have not repented of? Any sins that you're hiding or anything like that that may be leading to this? And um, in, in my time as a pastor, there have been times when someone has said, actually, yes. And uh, they confessed and we prayed and the Lord healed and then there have been times when um, they say, no, nothing that I can think of. And we've prayed and they didn't get healed and actually died. So uh, there is just, if there was any confusing about that. So we see that when a believer is sick, uh, they are told to call for the elders to pray that they may be healed. And the, uh, another place in Philippians 2, 25 through 30 we have an example of this. So we have, a, we have a command, if you will, maybe an allowance. The word let is, is you know, not as strong of a word, but um, an allowance to ask for the elders to pray. But here we have an example. Philippians 2, 25 through 30. Would you read that, brother?
So here we have an example of even the Apostle Paul um, having this very near and dear friend who was not only sick, but close to death. And it sounds like, based on the context, that he got in that place because of the gospel, because of Christ. We don't know the details, but he nearly died for the work of Christ. Maybe he was... um, preaching the gospel and it was cold and it was raining and he got pneumonia or something like we don't know but it sounds like he nearly died because of the cause of christ and rather than there being overwhelming joy like this brother's near to death he's about to see the lord let's usher him in paul said the lord had mercy on not only him but on me because i would have had sorrow upon sorrow sorrow that my dear friend was sick close to death, seeing him suffering like that, and then the added sorrow of him dying. Um, And the whole church was with him in that. And then one more example uh, of this being practiced, here is Paul telling Timothy, you all probably don't even need to turn there to see this, but it's 1 Timothy 5.23, where Paul tells Timothy, you got some stomach problems. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach in your frequent ailments. So he tells him to take some natural remedies, (laughs) if you will, um, for the sake of healing. You know, this is something you deal with. It sounds like chronic pain, maybe ulcers, um, gallstones, don't know, but whatever he was dealing with, he has frequent ailments, his stomach has issues, and Paul says, take something to make you better. So, in a sense, to prolong your life rather than cut it short, um, if that was possible. So, one of the reasons why we pray when someone, a believer, is sick is because we see it commanded and practiced in Scripture, and why? Okay, so that's why we do it. But what's the sentiment behind it? What's the what's the the benefit? We say it's far better to be with Christ. So let's go to that place where that's written, Philippians one eighteen through twenty six, so that we can understand the heart of this. Philippians 1, 18 through 26. Would somebody read that? And again, the question is, when a believer is sick, why do we pray for them to recover rather than for the Lord to take them out of this cruel, sinful world and go and be with him? Philippians 1, 18. What then? Only that in every day... Whether in goodness or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith. So here we see the struggle. It wasn't just the questioner's struggle, it was Paul's struggle. And if you're here and you're a believer, it's been your struggle too. Uh, you want to be with the Lord. You desire to see his face. You want to walk with him. You want to be done with your sin. You're tired of failing. You long to worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. You want to you want to hear his voice without any distraction. You want to fellowship without interruption. You desire to rest forever in him with no more sorrow or sadness or sin or Satan or the disgusting world that we you desire to be with him. And you realize there's much to do in this world. If the Lord were to remove all the believers, this world would be left in utter darkness. Where's the witness? Where's the light? Where's the salt? Where's the gospel herald? Who's going to cry out on the street corner and tell people to repent and believe? We all want to go. But Paul said, there's fruitful labor to be done. And for your sake, I mean, the, the, the thing that staggers me about this is what book is this written in? Philippians. Where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? Prison. Think about that, right? He's not like in the Hamptons on vacation, enjoying all the luxuries that God has allowed us to. He's in prison saying, I'd rather stay here for your sake. I'd rather continue suffering for your account because there's so much to do. And he was convinced whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, it's good as long as I'm focused on him, with him, doing for him. And when that's your heart, who can threaten you? What can they threaten you with? Death? Great, I get to be with my Lord. Well, we're going to keep you alive in a prison. Great, I get to serve him there. Whether you're sick, whether you're well, whatever you are, it's for him. And uh, the last thing I'll say is what I started with. With all that being the case, it really is good for us to examine our hearts about this. Do we really believe that when a believer dies... It's a good thing. Yes, you can have sorrow upon sorrow because they were loved. You will miss them. But the rejoicing, and that's the hope of the believer. That's why we don't um, grieve the way the world grieves. We don't mourn the way the world mourns because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's good news if you're in the Lord. It's terrifying news if you're not. Any follow-up questions or thoughts that came to your mind while going through that? Yeah, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Amen. He's in control of all things, including 
the appointment of our death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. And when he says it's time, nothing can stop it. Nothing can prevent it. And until he says it's time, nothing can speed it up. And while we're here, we want to be as faithful as we can. Okay. So that's the only question I have on the docket. What are some um, questions that may be in the room, if, if any? Hmm.
So, okay, you've been, let's, let's do some questions first. How many sins is the Christian forgiven of? Prove it. Amen, right? But uh, where do we get that from? How do you know all of your sins, not just some of them? The ones up until you say, yes, Lord, I surrender all. Forgive me. Save me. He redeems you. He, for, he saves you. sin will be forgiven. Yeah, good. Somebody have another? And if you don't have these memorized, I would recommend that you underline, make a note, because when the enemy comes in like a flood, <laughs> when he comes and whispers, you need to have truth to stand on. Yeah. Um, amen. There are many, many, many others. Okay, so you have your sins forgiven because of the blood. Um Yeah, um, Colossians two. Thirteen, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So. The big picture is. Oh, you got one, sis? Yeah. It's a comic. Right. Yeah. Now, you're right. That's scripture, and the forgiveness is promised there. More on a national level with the uh, nation of Israel as a people, but that truth is spiritually carried over into what the new covenant does provide. Yeah. Um, so the big picture of us being forgiven of all of our sins is extremely important. You need to have your theology grounded, okay? So, okay, I'm forgiven. Christ has suffered once. He has taken the wrath of God in my place for all that I have done. Past, present, future. Jesus is not getting back on the cross to bleed again for something I do tomorrow. Right? This is extremely important because the enemy is very cunning. All of your sins. 
And that does not in any way move the believer to, oh, great, all my sins forgiven. I'm just going to go run and go do the most wicked things I can because it's forgiven. No. The Christian is moved by the love of God through the sacrifice of Christ and says, I want nothing to do with that, right? Uh, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? But something comes to your mind. You're reminded of something you did before. That asked the question. And it haunts you. It comes back up on you. And uh, when you started to ask the question, I was hearing Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 20 you read that verse 20 and 21 or actually 323 20 through 23 yes Romans 6 20 through 23 for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness but to what fruit about them brings shame. There's a reality that when you reflect, sometimes this can happen as you're sharing your testimony and something, you know, your testimony is never a script. You tell it and then you tell it to someone else three months later and you may bring up something else that you forgot before. And when you're reminded of the sin of your past, there is a reality These are the things of which we are now ashamed. But notice that Paul doesn't stay there and say camp out there and dwell there. He immediately goes to where you are now, who you are in now, what is true now. There's an acknowledgement of that shame. You can acknowledge it. It was evil. It was wicked. I should not have done that. If there was wrong that you committed against someone else and you haven't gone to them, brothers and sisters, if you're anything like me, when you became a believer, you were spitting fire like a dragon, and you, everybody was just hell and condemned, and there was no mercy, no love, just real strong. Maybe push some people away in the name of zeal and righteousness, and as you mature in Christ, you realize that was sinful. What do you do? You go back to those people, and you, you know, as much as I love the Lord and his word and you, That was not loving in the way I approached you. Please forgive me. If you remember those things, if you're mindful of how you dealt with people, go to them. Uh, Beautiful example there of um, Zacchaeus, right? Comes down from the tree. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I repay you. I restore sevenfold. Um, We're going to look at it somewhat today. Philemon, Paul says, if if he has wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. There's a reality of of restoration if it's possible to do that. Uh, But overall, if it's just 
You're reminded of what you did. Here's where we must recognize the voice. And I don't mean like you hear voices, but you're reminded of the past. It brings shame, but then it begins to bring despair. It begins to bring condemnation. It begins to bring this, man, I'm just so filthy. I'm just so this. I'm just so that. It leads to darkness. Not to hope. Not to righteousness. Not to joy, not to looking to Christ. It leads you down. It leads you to looking at self. Who would want you to look at self? Who would want you to focus inward and just gaze at the sin, at the sin rather than at the Savior? See, the Lord, the Spirit of God will bring your sin before you to convict you, to bring your eyes not to the sin, but to the Savior. Not to, your, not to the behavior that you did, but to the blood that redeems you from that behavior. So there may be a place for you to repent to someone, confess to someone, uh, repay someone. But the overall, the big issue, the issue of the heart, when you are reminded, though it brings shame, quickly move to the cross. Go there with your shame. Go there with the guilt. Go there with the grief. Go there with the sorrow so that, um, so that you can be healthy spiritually because of the truth. follow-up to that? New sins. Same thing. I mean, the cross is the place to go. <laughs> you, we, we should, uh, I, I know I repeat it often, but dwell where the cries of Calvary may be heard, like Spurgeon said. Don't go far from the cross. Um, there, there's a reason why Paul sought to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, not just for the sake of others, but for the sake of himself. How often have we heard it told to us? Preach the gospel to who? To yourself, <laughs> right? Why do you need to preach the gospel to yourself? Because just like in Zechariah 3, here's Satan, here's Joshua the high priest with filthy clothes, and there's Satan to condemn him, the accuser of the brethren who accuses them night and day before God, he will come, and your hands at times are dirty. You have done that. What do you need when that happens? You need the gospel. You need to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Now that you are a saint, is he going to throw you away? Um, approach the throne of grace. What does the King James say? With what? Boldness. The throne? God's throne? You're going to approach the throne of God with boldness? How? This is the throne before which the, the cherubim cover their faces. And you're going to approach it with boldness with confidence how could you do such a thing and why to receive help in your time of need and when are you not in a time of need when do you not need his help when do you ever worthy to stand before this throne we approach the throne because of christ and his blood and his merit his sacrifice the love that was poured into us we're never worthy to stand before the throne in our own merit because of our own performance because of our own righteousness it's always Always because of Christ. And the enemy is very crafty that when you sin, he will say, don't touch that Bible with those hands. Who are you to go pray to the God? You didn't want to pray just a minute ago when you were saying that and when you were doing that. Now you, oh, now you want to pray. And you begin to shrink back and say, yeah, I, I need to make myself worthy to approach the throne of grace. 
So what do you do? Okay, let me do some works, right? Okay, I, I, let me read my Bible, and maybe I'll share the gospel with some people. Or I, Okay, now I've done enough work. Now I can approach the throne. But that's not the throne of grace. Or you punish yourself. Or I'm not going to eat. Or I'm going to go without this. And Okay, now you beat yourself up. But Jesus already took the wrath. So you don't need to pour the wrath upon yourself and you don't need to earn righteousness because we're robbing Christ of what he came to do. The throne of grace is because he's already worked and he's already suffered so you can approach with boldness and confidence to receive help because you can't do it without him. And the reason you're probably in the situation you're in in the first place is because you thought you could stand on your own two feet. And when we think we can stand, take heed lest you When you fall, fall into the arms of the one who died for you. Fall forward at the foot of the cross. Yeah. I needed to hear that myself. Anyone else? actually of Job. And Job in chapter 1 um, we're told this is Job 1, 1 there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we're told immediately this is a man who is a believer. He is a lover of the Lord. And in verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. I love this family. I love how even though they're old, they still want to be together, spend time together. That's beautiful. It says something about Job as a father, perhaps, that he cultivated this kind of home. Verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, and this is, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he was thinking, like, just in case... I, I want to make sure they're covered, right? So he went to the Lord on their behalf because he said, just in case they may have done something they should not have done. So that was the behavior of a righteous man. Um, and to pray, uh, one of the practices of my mother is 
before we even start driving, and even if she, even if someone does start driving, she's going to pray that the car is protected and uh, not an instrument of destruction and all this thing that she. There are people who will do that. They pray, Lord, please protect, cover. Um, but that's not the only time you pray, right? It's not like, okay, Lord, give me this hedge of protection in the morning, and then I'll talk to you again tomorrow for another hedge. Um, and if that's the heart, if it's some rabbit's foot, lucky charm, magical incantation, God, you know, give me a shield around me. Thank you for that. I'm going on my way. Uh, that is not the heart of the Christian. That's a very dangerous way to think about God. Uh, he is not an add-on. He's not an umbrella. Um, he's not something to put on and take off. He is the living God. And children of God want to communicate with their father all day. So it could be that the person is doing it in the heart of Job, really thinking, Lord, just in case, I don't know. Or like uh, David, if there's any wicked way in my heart, try me, search me, know me. You know, it could be that. Uh, or it could be this very sinful mindset that uses God as an a, uh, accessory, <laughs> like some earrings or something. Um, so you said there was a follow-up question. Again, it goes to the first question. Well, it's not first question. Second question. How many of our sins have we been forgiven of? I mean, what, what is hell? Yeah, it's a burning forever. But what, what is it? Separation from God. I mean, he's there. All right, separation from his love, his mercy. It's the wrath of God. It's the anger of God. It's the fury of God. It's the distance from God and all of his mercy and kindness and grace. But why? Why does he pour out wrath on people? Why will... What, what are they doing there? What is that all about? Their sins. I mean, that's the whole point of them being there, right? They have sinned before a holy God. The soul that sins shall die. Christ died for your sins. So if Christ died for your sins on the cross, his blood paid for your sins, it is finished, then will the Lord so this is a question about the sufficiency, how how good was the blood of Christ really? Right? How righteous was his life? How how good was his sacrifice? If it was enough 
for the Father to be satisfied, then he has no more wrath to pour out on you. That is what propitiation means. That's what he came to do. This is why in the garden, he's like, is there any way I don't have to drink this cup? That was the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus drank it all. And he licked the bottom of the cup so not even a drop remained for you, Christian. He was, the curse was poured out on him that you might be blessed. If you die in the act of sin, that does not undo the blood of Christ. That does not undo the gospel. It will be a shameful thing. It will be a frightening thing. It would be a disappointing thing. But the fact of the matter is, if you are taken out, whenever you're taken out, guess what? You will be in the act of sin. What do I mean? What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And when have you ever done that? When have you ever loved him as he deserves to be loved? Never. So whenever he takes you out, you will be in the act of not loving him as he deserves to be loved. Sin is not just what we do, it's also what we don't do. The omission, I have not done this, I've left this undone. And the greatest law, the greatest commandment, the greatest act, the greatest thing you could ever do is love him with all. And you fail to do that. So you're always going to be taken in the act of Failing to measure up to the glory. And that's the good news of the gospel is that you're not ushered in based on your performance, your merit, how good you could be, how hard you try, how much you want to. It's based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's how you're able to stand before God. Not because you're good enough, because you're never going to be good enough when the standard is perfection. Now, there's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord, but the question was, it was already qualified. This is someone who has shown the evidence of being a Christian. This is not a, a carnal Christian. They live like the world, but they've made a, a, said a prayer, made a confession, profession. So, no, no, no. This is someone who, not, perp- not perfectly, but purposely sets out every day to honor the Lord. And every day, on your best day, you fail. And that is why we need Christ. We don't need him just to get us a blank slate and then we do the rest. That was the problem with the Galatians, right? I mean, okay, you've been justified. You think you're going to be sanctified now by your own strength? It's by the Spirit working through us, but... So... Yes, you're right, sister. This is a question that is often asked and genuine believers frightened. But I think this also goes into if you believe you can lose your salvation. If you believe that your salvation was because of you, I made a good choice, um, or is sustained by you, I'm being obedient enough, then how obedient do you have to be to keep it How many sins do you have to do to lose it? And then how do you get it back? And if you get it back, how good do you have to be? And now we're not even talking about the cross anymore. Jesus is out of the picture completely and it's all you. 
So if you think it's all me, it's based on me, I, I started this thing, I, I have to keep this thing going, then that's not salvation at all. That's deception from the enemy to get your eyes off of Christ and onto yourself. And we're back at the same thing, right? That's his strategy. So. No, the Lord never changes. No, he's faithful. He's faithful. Um, that's all very good. Thank you. So based on these previous questions, to what extent should the believer confess sin to um, others, to the Lord, the pastor, to loved ones? Um, just can you explain confession based on this previous and previous provided Yes. So... One has to do with, well, <clears throat> actually the verse that you quoted from 1 John, right? Um, confess your sins. Uh, what was it that you quoted, brother? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So this confession is to the Lord. Some say this is the confession that brings you into salvation. Perhaps this is the this is the confession after salvation. Perhaps uh, I'd say both. Right. I mean, we need to confess our sins to the Lord. Um, Lord, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. Have mercy on me. Please save me. Forgive me. This is something that every Christian um, has done when they were, you hear the testimonies of believers. This was part of it, confession of sin. But we continue to confess sin to our Lord. But why do we confess sin to the God who knows everything? What's the point of that? It's a relationship, right? Like our sister said, he doesn't change. He hasn't moved. The son has already died. Mercy has already been extended. You've already been adopted. He's your father. That relationship is not going to change. We mess up. We make things awkward by our disobedience and our rebellion and our lack of love. And when we do that, now there is something between my soul and the Savior. We sing that song, nothing between my soul and the Savior. How do you keep nothing between your soul and the Savior? Someone said, keep short accounts. Confess immediately. You looked where you shouldn't have looked. Father, forgive me. That was lust. That was murder. That was covetousness. That was idolatry. Forgive me for that. You're worthy of me not doing that. Help me to look to you. An unkind word to your child. Don't just brush it off of, ah, I just had a rough day. No, that was sin. Father, forgive me. Confess. Don't let anything linger because sin is deceptive. It hardens. It will have your heart where it was Bob Jennings who pointed this out. Um, he said, remember, there was a time in David's life when he cut the corner of Saul's robe and it struck him. Later, we find him committing adultery and plotting the murder of a, an innocent man. Where's the striking of the heart? The reality 
that we can be hardened by not dealing with sin when it arises immediately to the Lord. Confess it. Confess it. He's not going to love you any less. He loved you while you were yet a sinner and sent his son to die for you. He's the one who can help you. Don't grieve the spirit. So keep short accounts. But what about when it comes to one another? How much should you tell? Who should you tell? And that is a very pastoral question. And the very pastoral answer is it depends. It depends. You don't want to say every thought that comes to your mind. It can actually cause problems. There are some people. I will say this. You need to have somebody in your life that you can tell things to. You need to have somebody that you can confess sin to. Someone who is godly, who is not going to take what you say and go spread it around like a disease. Someone who's going to pray for you. Someone who's going to hold you accountable. Someone who loves you, who loves the Lord, who is themselves rooted and grounded in the gospel. Right? They're not going to go give you a legalistic to-do list. But they're also not just going to say, ah, oh, don't worry about it. We're all sinners. No big deal. No, you want someone who's going to hold you to the word because they love you. And if you're married, that should be your spouse. And if your spouse is an unbeliever, again, I would need to hear more about the situation. Um, but you need to have somebody to do this. And, for, and James, which we were in earlier, talking about confess your sins to one another. Uh, the context there in um, chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is argument to say that this is talking about the members of the church confessing their sins to the elders of the church because go to the elders to be healed. Uh, but yeah, just... I would highly, highly recommend that you have somebody that you trust who you can share the things that you are most ashamed about with. And then it matters, the last thing on this I would say is it matters on your, your desire. I mean, there's no verse that says you have to confess this kind of sin to this kind of person at this time. A lot of this is... As the Lord leads you, but you know what sin does when it's kept hidden. You know what sin does when it's kept in the dark. You know that it does what? It, David laid it out. Your bones dry up. It hardens the heart. It interrupts the worship. It's hard for you to worship with raised hands when your conscience isn't clear. Going to the Lord's table. I mean, so much fellowship is interrupted, broken, messed up because of something that you're holding on to that you're afraid to tell somebody else. And when you have stepped out and confessed your sin to someone who you trusted, godly person, you have been relieved. You haven't uh, regretted doing that if they were godly and didn't take it and gossip about you. So uh, some of this is going to be um, as the Lord leads you, but definitely confess your sins always to the Lord and have somebody in your life that you can confess your sins to.
a couple minutes left. Anybody have anything they wanted to add or Jesus, he went to the demon possessed. That's that's pretty. That's a pretty rough crowd, right? I mean, you you don't yeah. So and he told us to do likewise, and even gave us authority um, with the gospel, the power of God unto salvation uh, to everyone who believes. And God's power is greater than the most filthy sinner and their drunkenness. I have heard testimony, and this one brother just gloriously saved he was as drunk as you could be he had just spent a night doing the most depraved things and the gospel broke through uh, God is able to read these stories of George Whitfield preaching and people who came there with weapons to harm him drop those rocks and um, coal miners faces all black with the tear you know I mean the, the reality of the hardened heart Breaking, And then you think of your own testimony, how hardened we were, how wicked we were. Uh, and there is what Jesus said, that there are dogs who, like you said, there's not the, not the domesticated dog that would, um, even the dogs under the table get the mask, not that kind of dog, this vicious, r roaming, dangerous dog. Uh, they would turn on you. The same with the pigs, um, these 
like these wild boars right, in Texas, they will turn on you. And so when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you're talking to them. This is, I'll say this. For the believer, there is no one more precious than Christ. And when you are presenting Christ to someone, if they will fill their mouth with spit, to spit on your Christ, you'll say no. This is good news. But if you don't want to hear this good news, then I will go to someone who does. Jesus did not grab that rich young ruler by the shoulder and say, but wait a minute, let me explain further. He let him leave. He let many people walk away. And he went from town to town. And sometimes he wouldn't enter. Sometimes I'm not. He wouldn't bring himself to do anything because of their unbelief. Um, I, I don't think that there's a Okay, if someone says this and it looks like that, then always this is, again, some of that abiding in him, being led by the Spirit, a case by case. But if someone is taking Christ, taking the precious things of the gospel, they're making jokes, it's a mockery, they're, they're, they're trying to interrupt the whole thing, uh, then based on my studies, it seems like that would be grounds to withdraw and pray. Because even... Paul, who was breathing fiery threats on his way to go murder Christians, was no match for the grace of God. But yeah, really, really good question. I would imagine some of those, uh, well, the man with the, uh, the lame feet at the pool of Bethsaida, probably homeless, right? Stayed there all the day. That's where he lived, on the street. And the Lord came to him. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you transform us. You change us. You give us hearts that desire to be with you. And you even give us hearts that will endure the suffering of this world for the sake of your great name and sinners being converted and your church being built. Lord, help us to remember the gospel when we fall. Help us to be good counselors who will counsel people towards Christ when they fall. Help us to restore people in a spirit of gentleness, considering ourselves, lest we do the same things. May we bear one another burdens, thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we will come back together, Lord willing, 1120. It's time for bathroom. Just a reminder, this door should remain closed. This is the door to go through. Uh, thank you.